This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Here is what is coming up. They carried them off saying that the church has not been respecting gunmen. We all know that the Catholic Church in particular has always been for justice and peace. That is Reverend Father Humphrey Tatambui of the National Episcopal Conference of Cameroon's Catholic Bishops on the abductions of five priests, a nun, and two worshippers from a church. All of this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Queen Elizabeth II is being buried today, closing the last chapter on Britain's longest-serving monarch. Thousands of people have lined up in recent days to pay their last respects to the Queen and see her lying instead. VOA reporter Henry Ridgewell in London spoke with me on the day's events. Henry, can you explain to us some of the ceremonial pageantry we saw on television with thousands of people lined up to send off the Queen? Yes, uh, this was an extraordinary day of the full British state power of pomp and ceremony on display to give a final farewell to Queen Elizabeth II. She's been lying in state in Westminster Hall, that thousand-year-old hall that's hosted so much of British history, uh, for the past four days. And hundreds of thousands of people, as you've been reporting on, have been lining up to see her and to pay their last respects. This morning, uh, at about 10.44 exactly, in fact, these things are very tightly choreographed, her body was taken, her coffin was taken on uh, a royal gun carriage carried by uh, just short of 100 Royal Navy personnel from Westminster Hall into Westminster Abbey, the religious setting for so much of that history. Uh, the pallbearers uh, took her coffin into the middle of the abbey she was followed immediately by her first son, now, of course, King Charles III and her other three children. Mm. And behind them, Prince Harry and William. And William, too, with two of his children as well, uh, Prince George, just nine years old, and Princess Charlotte, just seven years old. Right. So the full line of succession, if you like, on, on full public display for the service. Right. And, and what is the mood like in the streets of London? What are some of the feelings being expressed by the people and the royal family? It's difficult to sum up in, in just one, one way, I think. There are a multitude of emotions. There are some who feel this very personally, I think. They felt a deep attachment to the Queen after seven decades of her on the throne, and they feel like they've lost somebody they've loved. They, there were tears shed, there were flowers thrown. For some, it was, it was a very deep and personal day. For others, I think they turned up out of respect for the monarch uh, and those seven decades of rule and of service to the country. And for all, if not most, I, I think it was just to be there on a significant day of history, to be part of it and to be part of the group witnessing what was happening. Uh, for the royal family itself, I suppose they are well used to playing their grief out in public. One thinks back to the funeral of Princess Diana, for example, or the funeral just a year or so ago of the Queen's late husband, Prince Philip. But this has been a very difficult 10 days for them, of course, and they've had to keep that famous British reserve 
going. Uh, there were few tears shed, really, that we saw among members of the royal family, although, of course, they feel this very deeply right. and personally. Mm. So uh, a difficult time for them. Absolutely. And uh, King Charles effectively is now in charge of the monarch. Uh, some say a monarch that is in decline. What is expected of him? How is he likely to be different from uh, Queen Elizabeth II? I think he faces a difficult task. His popularity was nowhere near uh, that of the Queen before her death, although in the 10 days since then, its uh, polls show that actually his approval ratings have increased significantly by about 25%. People think he's done a good job of shepherding the country through a difficult time, of showing humanity and unity at this time. But looking ahead, yes, the monarchy is in a difficult situation. Its popularity is at an all-time low, albeit at 60%, so a majority still approves of the monarchy, but about 20% don't, and they tend to be younger generations who perhaps were not impressed by the treatment of Harry and Meghan and how they left royal duties and went to live in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so he faces the task of having to modernise the institution, I think, which won't be easy, while also keeping on board Commonwealth nations and other nations where the monarch is still head of state. There are 15 countries in total, and many of those Commonwealth members uh, have said that they are thinking about cutting ties with the monarchy or becoming republics. Australia, for example, plans to hold a referendum in the coming years. Uh, even the Bahamas and other Caribbean nations as well have, have indicated that they are thinking of, of cutting ties with the British monarchy. Right. VOA reporter Henry Ridgewell joining us from London. Thank you, Henry. Thanks, Jackson. World leaders are converging in New York for the 77th session of the United Nations General Assembly, commonly known as ANGA. The UN says that this year's participants will explore transformative solutions to interlocking shared challenges, including the global COVID-19 pandemic, climate change and conflict. And they say that the war in Ukraine will be on the minds of most African leaders as their countries struggle with the worsening food crisis driven in part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For more on what is on the agenda for this year's anger, I reached VOA UN correspondent Margaret Bashir. Meetings are taking place on the same day as the Queen's funeral. How has the funeral affected or otherwise overshadowed what is taking place in New York? So the annual debate actually starts on Tuesday. So a lot of leaders do have a little bit of time to rush to New York to make their speeches on Tuesday. But it actually has led to quite a bit of reshuffling of the list of speakers. Uh, but today's m main U.N. events, uh, such as the Education Summit, those are going ahead as scheduled. We had expected more world leaders here for that, but it's going to be going off more at the minister level uh, today. And the Secretary General, he made a tribute to the Queen this morning at his first event of the day. He said she was an extraordinary leader who gave a lifetime of service. And he noted that it's service and action for humanity that brings uh, the world together at the U.N. this week. And what are some of the top priorities on the agenda for African leaders as they meet other world leaders? Well, I think we're going to hear a lot about them ringing the alarm bells on climate change, how it is hurting the continent. Uh, for instance, we're seeing unprecedented drought in places like Madagascar and the Horn of Africa, and that's fueling food insecurity. Um, 
so we're going to hear also a lot about food insecurity, and that also relates to the war in Ukraine because uh, grain uh, and wheat exports from Ukraine ha have been uh, slowed because of the Russian invasion. So it'll be I'll be interested to see if uh, these African leaders mention the war specifically, and uh, because a lot of them have expressed that they feel they're pressured to take a side, and they've been trying to avoid taking sides in the war. Between, you know, they don't want to get stuck between either the United States or Russia. So they're sort of uh, trying to be neutral. So it'll be interesting to see how far they're willing to go in their annual debate speeches about the war mm, and, and that, its impact on them. Right. And, you know, many African leaders are there to speak about their own challenges at home dealing with the pandemic uh, and other local issues. However, the focus, like you say, for most of the world is on Ukraine. How are the leaders talking about or addressing this issue? What specifically has been the impact of Russia's invasion on the continent? We've seen global food, fuel, and fertilizer prices go up dramatically since February 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine. So the UN, the Secretary General, and Turkey have helped to um, negotiate a, a deal that Russia would allow Ukraine to export its grain, and uh, the U.N. will help smooth some of the obstacles to Russia selling its fertilizer because they're top exporters of this. Um, there are no international sanctions on fertilizer. It's important to point that out. But the Russians have placed quotas on it, and they've complained about companies not wanting to do business with them. And, and that is true. Some companies are afraid of running afoul of international sanctions if they do business with them. So they're not in, interested really in working with the Russians. But we need more fertilizer on the world market. I think we're going to hear that from the Secretary General this week. He's going to be driving that point home, because without fertilizer, especially in Africa, you're going to see smaller crop yields. And in 2023, this could lead to food shortages. And everybody wants to avoid this. That was uh, Margaret Bashir, VOA's UN correspondent in New York. Cameroonian authorities have accused armed separatists of abducting five Catholic priests a nun and two worshippers from a church on its western border with Nigeria. The Catholic Church in Cameroon says the gunmen torched the church in the town of Nchang Friday before fleeing toward the border with Nigeria. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yawunde. Roman Catholic Church officials in Cameroon say fewer than 10 of the at least 200 Christians expected at St. Mary's Church in Chang Village attended their church service Sunday after bishops reported a separatist abduction there. Nchang is a western village on Cameroon's border with Nigeria. Cameroonian bishops say more than 30 gunmen stormed the church Friday evening, shooting indiscriminately in the air before setting the church building on fire. The bishops say five priests, a nun, and two Christians were abducted and taken on motorcycles to the bush on the border with Nigeria. Alusius Fondong Abangalu, bishop of the Diocese of Mamfe, when Chang is located, visited St. Mary's Church Sunday. Abangalu said he was surprised that some of the fighters who attacked St. Mary's Church are former members of the church. They are my brothers and sisters who did this thing. Some of them are Catholic Christians. It's an abomination. We burn the church with Jesus inside. We are telling God, we don't want you in our land. This is a terrible thing. We all have to pray to beg God's mercy. A Bangalore spoke on local media, including Equinox TV and Satellite FM radio. Reverend Father Humphrey Tatambui, 
is Director of Communications at the National Episcopal Conference of Cameroon's Catholic Bishops. He says it is unfortunate for fighters to abduct Catholic clergy and committed Christians whose mission is to preach peace and make the world a better place to live in. They carried them off saying that the church has not been respecting gunmen. We all know that the Catholic Church in particular has always been for justice and peace. The church is neutral. No one has the right to target men and women of God. That's why the bishop wrote a letter to all the Christians decrying this kidnapping and asking Christians to pray for them. The Catholic Church in the letter released Sunday condemned the attack and said, since the separatist crisis broke out in Cameroon in 2016, clergy have been soft targets of kidnappers, torturers, and gunmen. Cameroon's military says the clergy and Christians were abducted by separatists, but does not give possible reasons for the abduction. The government says the military has been deployed to rescue the abducted people. Capo Daniel is Deputy Defense Chief of the Ambazona Defense Forces, one of the main separatist groups in Cameroon's English-speaking western regions. Daniel says splinter separatist groups attacked the clergy in Chang village. We are sending a warning to all the splinter Ambazonian forces that there is no justification for attacks against religious institutions that are the backbone of Ambazonian communal life. Whatever differences we have with some of the leadership of the Catholic Church, the church is sacrosanct and cannot be touched in this manner. Our fight is against the Cameroon state and its institution and not against the church. Daniel said some splinter separatist groups are attacking everyone they suspect of collaborating with Cameroon's central government in Yaoundé. The UN says that Cameroon's separatist crisis that degenerated into an armed conflict in 2017 has left more than 3,300 people dead and 750,000 internally displaced or having fled to neighboring Nigeria. Moki Edwin Kinzika for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please visit voaafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Critics say Egypt's strategy of selling public assets to Gulf countries is very risky and shows that the government does not have a long-term strategy. They say the government is selling profitable companies without thinking about how it will pay off its remaining debts. Mohamed Anwal El-Sadat, president of the Egyptian Party for Reform and Development, discussed the way out of the economic crisis with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. Well, I think the government have somehow reached an understanding that it is serious what they have been doing and what they are doing now. And that's why the president lately have been calling for this economic conference to take place by the end of September this month. 
to discuss ways and means how can we try to work out this economic reforms and how can the government can listen to different experts, investors, to see what will be the best way to deal with this crisis. It's serious, I can see, and I think time has come that they should somehow slow down all these decisions related to the economy until they work out a real strategy, a real plan. How can we be more productive? How can we encourage more tourism? How can we encourage exports? This is a way where we could have some balance, but not by selling assets and allowing acquisitions for this kind of profitable projects, you know. So I think they are reconsidering their position. Hopefully that we can see a positive outcome within the coming weeks, whether through this economic conference or through the national dialogue, which the president have been launching a couple of months ago. And part of it, there is also an economic dialogue to see how we can deal with the economic future in Egypt. Could the Egyptian National Dialogue manage to come up with a reform plan to correct the economic and financial policies that led to the current economic crisis in Egypt? This is the idea of the whole thing, not only in the economic, but also in the political sphere and the social uh, sphere. This is what, suppose, the national dialogue will go for. So we will have to wait. We expect that the real sessions will start second half September. Hopefully that they can come up with recommendations which the government will follow, will agree upon, and then we will take it from there and see what will be the outcome. That was Mohamed Anwal El-Sadat, president of the Egyptian Party for Reform and Development, speaking with viewers Mohamed El-Shenawi. In South Africa, analysts and even some government officials are concerned that President Cyril Ramaphosa's stubborn stance on the war in Ukraine is harming the country's relations with the United States. During a meeting on Friday with President Joe Biden, the South African leader reiterated his administration's position of, quote, not taking sides in global conflicts. Local political experts are concerned this could mean Washington is looking for a different partner to represent its interests in Africa. Darren Teller has more. Away from all the diplomatic backslapping, the compliments and kind words, there's a deep worry in Pretoria about its future as one of America's strategic partners. Senior state officials are concerned other African powers are going to bow to U.S. pressure to condemn Russia in exchange for favorable trade agreements, for example. Governance expert at the University of Johannesburg, Professor Antoni van Nieuwkerk, says South Africa's position on the continent is more complex than most. Remember the difficult tightrope that uh, President Ramaphosa has to walk here because America is the world's superpower, but there's an emerging superpower in the East, which is China. And of course, there's Russia, which is uh, destabilizing global order. And South Africa is, after all, a member of the BRICS alliance, which includes Russia, China, India and Brazil. The analyst says Ramaphosa has the almost impossible task of keeping everyone happy. 
So he has to find sort of a very carefully diplomatic balancing act to make sure that he attracts American capital that not alienate the Americans at the same time or our traditional South Africa's traditional partners in the global south. How he does that, we have to wait and see. The South African president told his American counterpart his administration would not take sides in the conflict in Eastern Europe. He called for a negotiated end to the war. But Fanny Karak says a mere call for peace will not satisfy the Biden administration. The Americans are committed to teaching the Russians a lesson in Ukraine. They regard the Russians as adversaries, if not enemies, as well as the Chinese. And so I think the American pressure on President Cyril Ramaphosa will be enormous. At the White House, Ramaphosa voiced his displeasure as a bill which could result in Washington imposing sanctions on African countries doing business with Russians linked to the Putin regime. We raised this as a concern that if that bill were to go through, it would marginalize Africa because it would seem like Africa would now be punished for having a partner like Russia. It would be unfair. The bill, the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act, is stalled in the U.S. Senate. Congress members backing it say it won't punish what they describe as normal business between Russians and Africans. Rather, it aims to sanction African governments who, for example, employ mercenaries supported by Putin. But Fanukark's convinced there's more to the bill. It's a form of, of pressure on South Africa and like-minded countries to throw their weight in with the alliance or the NATO grouping, if you want, opposing Russia. I don't see President Cyril Ramaphosa giving in very easily to this kind of very brutal pressure from the Americans. Because remember, after all, he has to return back home and attend the next meeting of the BRICS alliance. And he has to face the Chinese, the Russians, the Indians, and his fellow African leaders on the continent. Fanukarik's convinced Biden invited Ramaphosa to Washington to try to win a powerful public African ally for the West against the Kremlin. Now that this hasn't happened, he's convinced South Africa will face consequences. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The Associated Press says the Spanish charity Open Arms has rescued 372 people trying to cross the Mediterranean to Europe using flimsy smugglers' boats. The corpse of a man shot by smugglers has also been recovered. Some on board need medical attention and are suffering from dehydration. The charity has made at least two requests to seek safe harbor in Malta. The AP says the rescue ship performed three operations in 24 hours, including one that included 294 people, mostly Egyptians, in a barge in waters south of Malta. It says those on board had been at sea for four days. Other rescues include 59 migrants from Syria, Egypt, Sudan and Eritrea, including 10 children. They were taken from an oil platform they had reached in international waters near Tunisia. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent, 
visit our website at voaafrica.com. host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station. 